I'm Jessica Dorr, and you're listening to The Offering for February 12th, 2022. I've been busy this week preparing to offer a Tarot 101 class, the first in a few months. I've done versions of the class since the start of the pandemic here in the United States and took a break from doing it because it started to feel mechanical, like I was going through motions and had lost touch with why. The best thing about the 101 class for me is that if I can resist a slide into calcification, presenting the same material in the same way over and over again, I get to go back down to the studs, recall and pay respects to the heart of what tarot is for me. So there's something about class prep that becomes like a love ritual. It feels devotional, which is nice. In last week's offering, I quoted Benedictine monk David Steindl Rast on ritual, in which he refers to three dimensions of reality, truth, goodness, and beauty. I knew little about these three dimensions aside from Steindl Rast referencing them, and when I went down a rabbit hole about theologian Hans Urs von Boltazar, who wrote The Afterword in Meditations on the Tarot and whose work Shelley Rambo draws from in Spirit and Trauma, I stumbled on more about truth, goodness, and beauty than I'd bargained for, which was a delight. I'm going to share a bit here on what I found. In an article about Baltazar's work by Catholic author Stratford Caldecott, Caldecott wrote that for Baltazar, Theology was supposed to be a study of, quote, the fire and light that burn at the center of the world, which feels like Ace of Wands to me. But for Baltazar, the theologians of his time had reduced this study, quote, to the turning of pages in a desiccated catalog of ideas, a kind of butterfly collection for the mind. In a lot of ways, I feel this about psychology, too, but that's a rant for another time. So Caldecott writes that for Baltazar, the true God is to be found at the converging point of the common or transcendental properties of being that we call truth, goodness, and beauty. Having lost touch with these virtues, Balthazar felt that theologians had betrayed even the very master they claimed to serve. Before I left my job in psychology and self-help publishing, Though I was unhappy with the work itself, I interviewed with lots of other publishers in different genres, hoping a lateral move would spark my interest again. I was walking to an interview one day with a cookbook publisher in San Francisco when I saw a print of Susan O'Malley's mural in a shop window, which read in all capital letters, it will be more beautiful than you could ever imagine. I didn't get the job and ultimately left book publishing, but the words on that poster made me feel good and I never forgot them. In Aidan Nicholas's book, A Key to Baltazar, Hans Urs von Baltazar on beauty, goodness, and truth, the author writes that a function of beauty was to, quote, make us aware that in knowing we receive more than we project. What that means to me is that reality really is more than we can ever expect. What we plan to see always pales in comparison to what we really see, if we have the eyes and interest. I can't help but think of Parzival here. When he goes to the Grail Castle the first time, he sees a dazzling, intricate, and beautiful scene. But it's only when, tempered by time and a handful of hard lessons, he has the wisdom and curiosity to go back to the castle and ask the wounded king, and care to hear the answer, what are you going through? And it's then that he wins the grail and becomes king himself. 
Reality is more fundamentally a gift to us than it is a construction by us, writes Nichols. How could we be amazed by being in its beauty, he continues, if what we call knowledge of the world tells us more about us than it does about it, more about ourselves than about the world in all its variegated splendor? In psychological terms, it feels like he's talking about projection here. Realizing I had much more to learn about truth, beauty, and goodness, I dug more. I came across a book by Harvard professor and psychologist Howard Gardner called Truth, Beauty, and Goodness Reframed. Gardner seems to have some fundamentally different views on reality than Balthazar does, but I found his introduction to the virtues of truth, beauty, and goodness really useful. He starts by acknowledging that in a postmodern era, connected more and more globally through technology like social media, it's harder and harder to justify universals of any kind. It feels more clear each day that what's true for me is not true for the next person, and same goes for beauty and goodness. Rightfully so, people are increasingly concerned not only with is it true, beautiful, and good, but to whom, and for whose benefit. But Gardner also feels strongly that this trio of truth, beauty, and goodness do have a shared transcendental quality. He argues that, quote, Every known civilization has developed a conception of which statements are true and which are false, which experiences are considered to be beautiful, ugly, or banal, and which human actions and relationships are deemed good, compromised, or, frankly, evil. He cites Greek philosophers Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, who explicitly defined these terms. From there, it was easy for authoritarian and totalitarian governments to claim ownership over the parameters of truth, beauty, and goodness in order to justify violence. Gardner quotes George Orwell's dystopian novel 1984 here, namely the fictional Ministry of Truth's declaration that war is peace, freedom is slavery. Gardner argues that as conditions are constantly changing, so too will what's true, beautiful, and good. And while authoritarian claims on what constitutes each is obviously a problem, the structures themselves are useful in that they help us, quote, determine what is essential, what cannot and should not be scuttled, what is no longer relevant or justifiable, and what ought to be reconceived going forward. From my limited perspective, it's definitely easy to argue against standardized truth, beauty, and goodness. Like, if beauty is the ultimate, then why in fairy tales are characters rewarded who show compassion for the hideous? Does not goodness as an ideal proliferate shame and self-criticism? These are real questions with real day-to-day consequence. But maybe these questions are all part of renegotiating truth, beauty, and goodness, and maybe it's right to. Our growing awareness of the plurality of the world means that truth, beauty, and goodness can no longer be defined by what they are not. A quick glance at Twitter is all it takes to remember that the antithesis of your truth is the whole essence of someone else's. If it can't be about opposites, then we've got to do a bit of rethinking. I've cited the book Meditations on the Tarot countless times in these last years, and I feel like I'm telling a secret when I say that I actually just finished it last week. In my defense, it's 658 pages, and it's a book you have to be in the mood for to understand. I've told the story of how this book came into my life before, but I'm going to tell it again, and it is a bit winding. 
So I started to pray daily around the same time that I started doing daily yoga. My prayer was always very informal, some variation of, dear God, thank you for, and I'd say aloud on my daily early morning drive to yoga, the things I was thankful for. It was years of daily prayer before Valentin Tomberg's book, Meditations on the Tarot, came into my life. But it wasn't until meditations that I started to feel the pull toward a practice that was more formal. For obvious reasons, I hadn't resonated with the Our Father Who Art in Heaven I'd grown up with. I didn't believe in it, didn't appreciate addressing a man, was dubious about heaven, and so on. Doing the sign of the cross, which is where you touch your forehead, chest, left, and right shoulder, and say, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as you do it, was a no for me too, for all those reasons and more. And while Hail Mary was marginally better, I didn't like the part where we had to say, the Lord is with thee, as if that was what made her valid, since it was implied that the Lord was a man. I had hang-ups on hang-ups, and rightfully so. So I'd been living in the Bay Area when I started doing daily yoga and my own version of daily prayer. And in 2016, I moved back east, first to Nashville, then Philadelphia after a five-month stay in Kingston. I started and finished social work school while living in Philly, and the summer I graduated, went back to Berkeley to visit friends and see my yoga teacher. While I was there, I wound up signing a lease for a place in the hills where I'd write the first draft of my book. I didn't really want to move back to the Bay. It was impulsive and also a bit compulsive for reasons I don't feel comfortable getting into here, but suffice it to say that the Bay was never home for me, and as hard as I tried, I couldn't make myself someone for whom it would be, and trust me, I tried. Conversely, I'd felt almost instantly at home in Philadelphia and really should never have left. But for whatever reason, I did a version of something I'd done many times before, which was signed the lease, flew back home, ignored what I knew, and got to sifting, tossing, sorting, labeling, taping, lifting, hauling, and once again, leaving. By Thanksgiving, my unessential books, clothes, cookware, and records were in a center city storage space, and I was living in Berkeley in what I came to call the treehouse. I regretted what I'd done almost immediately and thought mostly of going home, but I had a job to do, my first book to write. In the style of yoga I do, which is called Ashtanga, many people do it six mornings a week, ideally with a teacher. I had found a good teacher back in Philly, but was happy to be in Berkeley if for no other reason than that I could practice with my first teacher of nearly a decade, Vance Seelover. One day after practice, pretty soon after I'd touched down back in Berkeley, there was a pile of books for giveaway by the door. In it was a pristine, unread copy of Meditations on the Tarot, which I'd never heard of or seen. I took it home only because I was preparing for a class on the Major Arcana, which I'd clumsily named Demystifying the Major Arcana, and the book is about the Major Arcana only, so it sort of seemed like a coincidence and a sign. On an especially regretful day, it was gray and raining and dark in the treehouse, which didn't get much light to begin with, I was working on the class material and feeling frustrated with the Hierophant. Looking back, this is not surprising. The symbols in this image are explicitly religious, while the class and most of my work at that time looked at tarot through the aggressively secular lens of behavioral psychology, which has little to do with religion. And I say religion here in the etymological sense of the word being to do with rebinding. Rebinding to what, you ask? Well, earth, maybe, and to each other, to kin. And I say kin in the sense that Donna Haraway tells it as, quote, a wild category that all sorts of people do their best to domesticate. I say kin as something probably much thicker than we can see and more inclusive, something that asks us to stay with the trouble 
of the hardest questions there are about care. Psychology, as I knew it then, dealt little with care beyond the individual, and so I was finding it hard to connect with symbols of religion or rebinding of any kind. At a loss, I picked up meditations and turned to the fifth letter. So for those who aren't familiar, this book has a one-page forward by the author and then is followed by 22 letters, starting with the magician and ending with the fool and then the world. The anonymous author, later outed as Valentine Tomberg, says that the fifth arcanum, the Pope in his book, or the Hierophant and the Rider-Waite-Smith, is a card to do with benediction and prayer. I was hooked at the very first line, which reads, the card, the Pope, puts us in the presence of the act of benediction. If you study or train in behavioral therapy, then you know that this idea of being blessed from something beyond the self is not a thing that's considered in that work. The emphasis is on behavior change, and that's change that can be enacted for and by oneself. And while that change obviously exists in the context of relationship with others, the focus and onus is pretty much always, in my experience, on the individual. And there are a lot of situations where it's the right thing to do to build personal agency and power. And I believe there's a place for the hope that one might also be blessed without having necessarily earned or worked for it. The blessing need not come from a god or the divine, but how about time or evolution or cells clustering together and breaking apart in a learning process? There are so many ways to be blessed. Still, in Tomberg's telling, benediction is not passive. He frames the process in terms of circulation, like blood, pointing to the two columns in the image as representing the twofold current of prayer and benediction. He also connects the two columns with the pillars of justice in Kabbalah's Tree of Life, the pillars of mercy and of severity. Because it is severity which stimulates prayer, and it is mercy which blesses, he writes. An idea that's really stayed with me from meditations is that when it comes to formal prayers, the Our Fathers and the Hail Marys, and I'm using examples from my own traditions here, but there are obviously many beyond these, there's magic involved in saying them. Tomberg calls formal prayers like these prayer formulas and wants the reader to know that one is never alone when saying them. Rather, all the vigor and passion with which they've ever been said is evoked through the recitation as if a prayer were an archive of affect and ancestry, of severity and of joy. I hold this in mind when I say prayers, whether I'm at the top of a mountain with vision for days or 50 miles deep doing a butterfly stroke through lava, melting into a new shape. I envision linking up with every other being who's ever said the same words, treading some similar terrain like my grandmothers who had their share of heights and depths. I feel the truth that, as Tomberg writes, one never prays alone, and that each prayer is consecrated by use, made sacred. It is imbued with a, quote, magical virtue, since it is collective. You're listening to The Offering for February 12th, 2022. 
This is a subscribers only paid weekly offering, but you can share the link to this audio with anyone you think might enjoy it or find it useful. Thank you so much for being here and for your support. This recording was engineered by Lee Clark and the music is by Lee Clark. The intro song is called Evaporate and the outro is unreleased. You can listen to Evaporate in full, plus more of Lee's work wherever you stream music, and you can find him online at the links in this post. See you next week. Because of you.